you really dig for a tremendous amount of detail and sometimes those details can play an important role in figuring out a case or exposing a case or exposing an injustice. Good investigative journalism takes time. Sometimes it takes years to uncover a crime or injustice. Few areas of journalism are as fascinating or as essential to our democracy. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jerry Mitchell's reporting in his three decades at the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, exposed killers who evaded prosecution for years because the authorities said they had insufficient evidence to prosecute. This included the killings of civil rights activists in the 1960s and the longest delayed conviction in a serial killer case in U.S. history. In 2018, Jerry co-founded the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, where he now serves as director. Welcome to the podcast, Jerry. Oh, good to be with you. So you've had a, a pretty long career as a journalist, uh, as an investigative reporter. How did you end up becoming a journalist? Well, I really got into journalism. I started in journalism in high school. I was the editor of my high school paper, the Tiger Times, you know, so that <laughs> I'm sure everybody remembers that. <laughs> no, I got interested in writing, essentially, and that kind of drove me into journalism. There was a career day and someone came in very young actually just barely graduated from high school talking about journalism and i thought well that sounds interesting and i like to write and so really once i got into it after high school and college started doing professionally i found out that i had much more aptitude for reporting than i did for writing i found i was a much better reporter and so uh, that's kind of how that journey began so you have a lot of experience in investigative journalism. You know, what was it that appealed to you about that? I just have always been attracted, I guess you'd say, to injustices that, you know, weren't being dealt with or corrected. That's even beyond just, you know, obviously these civil rights cases. Okay. So tell me how you sort of got involved. I mean, were your earliest jobs investigative or did you sort of go out yeah, and pursue those types know, of stories. I, I remember early on, I remember early on, I had this editor in a small paper in Texas, which is where I'm from originally. And working for this guy, he had been a state house reporter, I believe in Oklahoma. And so he was asking me what I wanted to do. And, and by that point, I, I was just out of college. And I was like, well, you know, I think I'd like to be an investigative reporter. There was something about that appealed to me. And he said, asked me if I'd read All the President's Men. I said, well, I've seen the movie. He said, read the book and study how they use attribution. And it was absolutely the best advice, you know, I ever got in journalism. It really propelled me down that path of really being an investigative reporter. I Worked not long after that for the Hot Springs Sentinel Record, which is in Arkansas. And I kind of became their investigative reporter. I didn't necessarily bear the title per se, but that was kind of what I was doing is, you know, investigating uh, some corruption there. And, you know, that's where I first got my taste of it and got interested in uh, reporting as a thing to bring change, I guess is a good way to describe it, to expose these things and help to bring change. So, you know, I, I, we've had a couple of, uh, in, you know, investigative reporters on this podcast before. And, you know, I know in talking to them, they've said, well, you know, you know, this is just sort of reporting to me. 
do you see any distinction, you know, to what, what you do as an investigative reporter is to what a, a regular reporter does, a beat reporter? Well, in a sense, no. I mean, we're all reporters. But I guess the distinction that's being made is just the idea of the level of reporting that's done. And so, you know, I mean, you can do as a reporter a daily story on a particular issue that maybe you've never written about before, but you're not going to get the depth that you will. For instance, this year I'm digging into prisons in Mississippi. Well, they're just into, it's almost like an onion. They're just into being layer after layer after layer after layer. And you just want to get past those initial layers to begin to really find out what's going on. I mean, I think you have to do that. And so that's the distinction I would make between, you know, kind of regular reporting, investigative reporting. It's time, really, to be honest. It's not lots of reporters can do investigative reporting, but it's just a matter of time. A lot of times they, they're stuck on their daily beat and unable to invest the time into it. So how do you choose a story to really kind of dive into? You know, for example, let's talk, if you don't mind talking about this, sure. this prison story, I mean, how do you yeah. recognize that as something that you could, you know, sick your teeth into? Do you just like, you know, hey, this is this has got a lot of detail. This has got a lot of depth. Well, it's a good question. I mean, I for me, it was easier because I had written about them before. I really began writing about prisons back in 2014, spent almost a Spent basically a year working on a prison project there at the Clarion Ledger with some other reporters. So I was already familiar with prisons. Ten days, I think, after our series ended, the Mississippi Corrections Commissioner, Chris Epps, was indicted for corruption. And he went off to prison for 20 years now. He's still in prison. So tell me about the civil rights cases that you were working on at the Clarion Ledger. Sure. I started writing about those cases back in 1989. I happened to see the movie Mississippi Burning, which really is a fictional film. It's not really a lot. Most of it's not true, although it has some basis in truth. And But I saw it with two FBI agents and who investigated the case. That's the killings of the three civil rights workers, James Cheney and uh, Andy Goodman and Mickey Schwerner. And so was really intrigued by the fact that nobody ever got prosecuted for murder in that case. There were like 20-something Klansmen involved, and nobody got prosecuted for murder. That just kind of blew my mind. And so that that's kind of the opened my eyes to – I didn't really know a whole lot about the civil rights movement. And it really began to open my eyes to that. And I began to read. I began to talk to people and began my journey down that path. So how long did you work on that story? I started writing about that story in 89, and in 2005, Eggery Killen was convicted in, the, in those murders. What was the hardest part about you know investigating it? Was it just that there was so much time had passed, or was it just not a lot of resources? What was uh Yeah, I think all the, all the above. I mean, I think that anytime you deal with a cold case, there are just lots and lots of hurdles you may have. For starters, dead suspects, I mean, then that can be prevent the case from even going forward. Typically have at least some dead witnesses. That can keep a case from going forward, too, if you have a, it relies on an eyewitness account and things like that. But then there are things that can help. If there's been a trial or a hearing or there's been cross-examination, then you can have a, use a, a transcript of the hearing or the trial. 
So you've got so, those kinds of things. Yep. You know, that's, you know, 89 till what you said, 2005? Mm, 16 years. 16 years. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you stay on that case for 16 years? You know, did you, was there any sort of point where you kind of felt like I'm never, never going to find the end of this. I'm never going to be able to resolve this. Yeah. Yeah. Actually I did. And of course what happened is I started working on that case and then got involved in the mega rivers case. And then that got prosecuted and he was, Byron Dillebeck was convicted in 94. Then I worked on the Vernon Damer case and Sam Bowers got convicted in 98 worked on the Birmingham church bombing case and Bobby Cherry got convicted in that case in 2002. And then all along I wrote about the Mississippi burning case, but there was a period of time. It just looked like nothing was going to happen. And I remember so distinctly, I found online a copy of the FBI reward poster. And I literally posted it like as a screensaver for my computer. So that it was just like a reminder to me, you know, to me from them, interestingly, don't, don't forget about us. And so I, I, I put that reminder on my computer. And so Killen was in fact, uh, yeah, I didn't give up. I kept writing about it. And, and so Killen, Edgar Ray Killen was indicted and convicted in 2005. So what was key for, you know, you with that case? Was there new evidence or was there some, you know, what was it that sort of came to you? What kind of reopened the case in earnest was I basically found or, or was able to get access to an interview that Sam Bowers, who was the head of the KKK in Mississippi, the White Knights of the KKK in Mississippi. And so he headed that organization and he had done an interview with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. And I had someone leak me that interview. And in that interview, Bowers talked about the 1967 federal trial. There was a trial on federal conspiracy charges. And so that was, you know, what that trial happened about. I had a transcript of it by that point. Anyway, but Bowers had this interview. I was curious what he said, and I was able to get hold of it. In it, he said he was quite delighted to be convicted. He was one of seven Klansmen who was convicted. He was quite delighted to be convicted and have the main instigator of the entire fair walk out of the courtroom a free man. And he was referring to Edgar A. Killen. And, of course, this had never been made public. And so I did a story. The authorities kind of reopened the case in earnest. That was in 1999. And so it got reopened and then kind of seemed to go some and then kind of began to peter out again and then a new Attorney General came on board in 2004, and then it was Jim Hood. And basically, he's, you know, both he and there was a, a citizens organization called the Philadelphia Coalition. Both of them really, between the two of them, that's, and then Carolyn Goodman, Andy Goodman's mom, came and visited with the Philadelphia Coalition and with Hood. And I think all those things kind of combined to uh, help the case go forward. Years ago, I, I was, you know, was fortunate to, you know, I don't remember the name of the journalist, but it was an invest, you know, investigative journalist uh, who had a, a long history of exposing corruption and, and that sort of thing. And one of the things I remember him saying was that he always believed that there would be a document 
that would mm-hmm. would support whatever he was looking for. Do you right. do you have that sort of feeling as you're you're investigating things that there always will be something? You just need to keep digging. I, yeah, I I don't know that I I believe there's always a document, but I I believe that there's always hope. You know, always a possibility in a case you look at. I mean, another good example of it, and this is not investigative reporting, but it's just certainly, but certainly investigation. I mean, the, all the things that got that were found with the Emmett Till case. I mean, uh, the transcript, long lost transcript, was found, and you know, different things like that. You know kind of amazing that these things get found, but that's been typical in my experience. You work on these cases and you would think, how on the Mississippi burning case, how many books have been written about that case? How in the world can I find out something new about this case? But inevitably, I would, and repeatedly reported about how the jury deadlocked 11 to 1 and didn't convict Edgar Ray Killen in the 67 trial because the holdout juror told him that she could never convict a preacher. <laughs> so, I mean, that was, that was news to me. And I did a story and, you know, it, it played an important role just from a perspective of that justice wasn't done. So have there been stories that you've worked on that you just, you hit what you felt was like, a, okay, this is a real dead end. And that you had to walk away from. You're always going to hit dead ends. I think I always think of them as kind of rabbit trails you run down, and and not all of them are going to pan out, but but you run down them because you never know. And my philosophy about investigating cases is work the edges. I think that's the one advantage that reporters have that say police investigators or others like that don't have, because they typically are looking for something direct. They're looking for you know, a confession or, you know, I mean, they're trying to find something direct and me, I'm more interested in kind of the broader. I may be interested even in the weather. You know, what was the weather like that day? What was this, you know, you really dig for a tremendous amount of detail. And sometimes those details can play an important role in figuring out a case or exposing a case or exposing an injustice. You know, let's say the guy's statement to police was, I remember that, you know, remember that well. I'm, you know, a good example, I, I worked on the Birmingham church bombing case and Bobby Cherry swore to me that he was watching wrestling on TV that night. Well, you know, you would think someone wouldn't be so stupid as to tell you that and it not be true, right? But this is what you do as a reporter. You check things out. And in the South, this is the way we say it. You know, even if your mama tells you she loves you, check it out. You know, so so you do. You, you check it out. And so I, when I got back to the newsroom, talked to our librarian, Susan Garcia, and just said, hey, Susan, check with the Birmingham News and see what was on TV. That night, because back, I remember this from when I was a kid, you know, they used to run the entire TV schedule in the newspaper. It wasn't even that big, you know, it was like a small box because, you know, programming was not, but maybe 12 hours a day, maybe 14. And you had maybe two or three channels, you know, so there wasn't that much programming to put in the box. And she came back to me the next day and said, look, there wasn't any wrestling, you know. And so then I dug deeper and found out there had been wrestling on for years. So those are the kind of things that you want to, you're careful about. You make sure the details, just because somebody says it doesn't make it true. 
and you, you often what you do, and this is what I, what I've tried to do in every single case I've worked on civil rights cold cases, is I want to talk to the guys. I want to talk to the killers themselves. I want to see what they have to say. What's their story? Maybe how did they get to be racist or, you know, with regard to the case, get them to talk about the case. And it's amazing sometimes what these killers will tell. It's just fascinating. So in 2018, you started, uh, you co-founded the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. What was your intent in doing in doing that? Well, I wanted to keep doing the kind of investigative reporting I was doing. And so the nonprofit is the best way to do that. You know, it's gotten increasingly tighter at for-profit, you know, newspapers and, and publications and news outlets. There's just less and less time that reporters can spend on really in-depth or investigative reporting. And so we're, we're kind of dedicated to that. We want to be able to expose, as our slogan says, we want to be able to shine light and expose darkness. So that's what we're about. We're about doing that and want to be able to do that. And that's what our organization is about. So how do you do that? Are you actually investigating cases or, or stories or, or are you supporting yeah, people well, doing that? Right now, we're, we've done a whole series of a whole different, you know, a whole series of series on various topics. We did a uh, history of public education funding in Mississippi, along with some other stories about public education. We did a series on gun violence as kind of a health issue in places like Jackson. We did stories on foster, the problems of the foster care system in Mississippi. I'm doing a year-long project on the problems in prisons in Mississippi. We're starting to work on some stories on abuse of power in Mississippi. So there are a lot of things that need to be tackled. And and I'm trying to work with some universities to try to start kind of a, a justice squad or whatever you want to call it. It would be kind of looking at look at cold cases, but then be able to tackle other cases as well. So, yeah, and I noticed that there is an education component to your website. Are there resources available for people to use? Our website is mississippicir.org, and we have all those series available. People want to subscribe to our newsletter. They can do that. If they want to contribute, they can, they can do that. But we're essentially trying to tackle the issues that are important to Mississippi and to expose the things that need to be exposed you know, try to make a difference here in this state. And, and I think we're, I think we're doing that. Our reach, our last series actually was beyond 3 million and just within less than six months of opening our doors. So pretty excited about that. We had a front page story, a story of ours the other day ran the front page of USA Today. Another story of ours ran the Guardian in London. So in addition to the fact that Almost every major newspaper in Mississippi is now running our story. So, so we're pretty excited. We're pretty excited. So how does that work? Are, are you entering in partnerships? Are you creating content and then sort of farming it out? Yeah, we're, we're doing both. We are indeed creating partnerships. We're partnering with the Mississippi Press Association. The vast majority of Mississippi newspapers belong to the Press Association. They distribute our content. So we're working with them. And we're working with these newspapers who are running our content. We are indeed a content creator, but we're also a distributor as well. We have others who are creating content that want to use our network. 
And so we're, we're able to do that as well, able to distribute that content then out to Mississippi newspapers, or other Mississippi outlets that are running our stories. Yeah, I know that with, uh, you know, the sort of the upheaval that, that's gone on in the last decade in, in our industry and a, in a lot of papers closing and, you know, laying off staff and, and sort of a bare minimum of, you know, sort of survival and of what they're able to cover. It's strange because one of the things that that news readers value is this this sort of in-depth reporting. But, you know, I think you kind of alluded to it. It's something that takes a lot of time, which means it takes a lot of money. Is this something that, that concerns you with sort of the state of journalism right now? Well, I'm very concerned about, you know, the state of investigative reporting from a perspective of the for-profit outlets that are out there are increasingly restricted. They're, they're having to do, they're trying to do more and more with fewer and fewer people. It's, and it's difficult to do that. And so I think that's why I think the nonprofit approach is a good approach because we're not having to rely on making a profit. In fact, we are indeed a nonprofit. I can, I can testify <laughs> to that. And so, but that's a great thing too, because we are not beholden to stockholders. We're not beholden to other, you know, our advertisers or something like that. We're, we're raising money and, and we're just getting individual contributions and also grants like we did this one from ProPublica that I got for, you know, to work with them for a year. So it's very exciting. So uh, what would you say to somebody, maybe even a young journalist who wants to get into this type of reporting? Well, I think that there's a, a lot of room for investigative reporting. And I think it's going to take increasing creativity to make it all work. But I see a lot of excitement about around reporting. I just went to the investigative reporters and editors conference recently and I think the numbers were something like more than 6,000 members now. And that's more, that's a record number. I mean, they've never had that many, you know, it was like, it's kind of fascinating as, you know, the for-profits have, have downsized for-profit journalism, you know, press outlets have downsized. There's been a huge increase in interest in investigative reporting, which is exciting to, uh, to me. For somebody like me who's 60 years old now, it's very exciting to see the young journalists, you know, who are interested in investigative reporting, young students who want to do investigative reporting. I think it's tremendous. And I, I think that, you know, you're talking more than 6,000 members now of IRE and, and things like that. I, I mean, I, I think there's real hope. I think it's a matter of figuring out the models. Uh, the nonprofit is one model we, we see so far that's working. So, but there will probably be other models as well that we can figure out over time. And I, that's what I'm excited about. It really is an exciting time to be in journalism because our stories can get out so much easier, so much quicker beyond just our little neck of the woods. One thing I didn't ask you, and I probably sure. should ask this right, right from the beginning, why, why is investigative journalism so important? I believe investigative journalism is important because it's the lifeblood of democracy. It just is. We need an informed public. We are a democratic republic. And in order to have that democracy work as it should, these citizens 
have to be able to make informed decisions. How are they able to make informed decisions? Well, I'm just, my personal opinion, I don't think you're going to get it through Facebook posts and blogs and whatever else. I think the way, you know, by your buddies, I mean, who knows? I mean, it may be the Russians, you know, <laughs> you know, so you need to be able to make informed decisions based on trustworthy information. And so that's what we're trying to provide is we're providing that information so people can make informed decisions about their government and how it's working. And without that, we're just flying in the dark. We're flying blind. And the other problem with that is it opens us up to being manipulated by, you know, demagogues and others who who have ill intent. You know, we certainly don't want that. And that's why it's so important. I, I just spoke with some people this week from India. And they have had 70 journalists who've been killed or have disappeared. And it was just a good reminder about why what we do is so important. Because these are jobs that people get killed for in other countries. And, and then we certainly have had those killed here as well. Don Bowles and Paul Giard and, and some others. So there are examples of those. But this is why it's important. Because the public needs to know this information, needs to have this information, needs to be able to to be informed, to be able to make informed decisions. Well, you know, I, I don't think I could have said anything or add to anything that would make that any more impactful. Jerry, thanks for coming on the podcast. You bet. Again, the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. What's the website again? It's MississippiCIR.org. Yeah, you guys are doing great work there. I encourage well, people to you. check it out. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>